Here's to the great American settlers. The millions of you who settled for unsatisfying jobs because they pay the bills. Of course, there is something else you could do if you got something to say. Start a podcast with Spreaker from iHeart and unleash your creative freedom. Maybe even earn enough money to one day tell your old boss, Hey, I'm no settler. I'm an explorer. Spreaker.com. S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R. Hustle on over today. Great news. For a limited time, you can get one month free of Spectrum Mobile service. That's right. One month free with any new line. This exclusive offer is only available at select Spectrum stores. So stop by today. Our team of mobile experts are ready to help you switch and save hundreds on your mobile bill. Don't miss out on this incredible offer. Come see us at Market at Hilliard, Taylor Square, and Waterloo Crossing. Spectrum Internet and auto pay required. Restrictions apply. Visit store for details. Welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. Your host, Scott Curtis, wants to learn everything he can about stand-up comedy and take you along for the ride. Scott and his guests talk serious about comedy in every episode. Behind the Bits will uncover knowledge from different perspectives on subjects such as writing and performing stand-up comedy, as well as booking shows and the comedy life. If you're thinking about becoming a stand-up comic, already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits. Hey, BTB buddies. Happy New Year, and thank you for listening to Behind the Bits. First episode this year is a very good one. Steve Hostetter is one of the hardest working comedians working today. He co-founded the Nowhere Comedy Club, which is the gold standard for virtual comedy shows, and has a new book out called Ginger Kid, Mostly True Stories from a Former Nerd. This was a great talk, and I hope you enjoy it. Now, the BTB Internet Talk Show is back on Thursday at 8 p.m. this week. You can stream it live on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. I might throw in Twitch into the mix as well. Why not? Thanks again for listening. And here comes Steve Hofstetter. It's a good one. Today, I've got with me the hardest working man in the comedy business, Steve Hofstetter. Steve Hofstetter, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you? Great. It's really great to have you on the show. You are somebody I've wanted to have on the show, and I'm glad I saw your post uh, saying that you were going to do some podcasts. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. So I'm going to jump around a little bit here today because I want to make sure we put some important stuff up front. Uh, One of the things that I really admired that you did during this uh, pandemic is uh, you were the co-founder of the Nowhere Comedy Club. Can you tell me a little bit about that and how you got it started? Yeah. um, You know, Nowhere is the first uh, all-digital comedy venue. Um, and the way we got it started is I'd been doing virtual reality shows for years. Um, and Ben Gleave had been doing live streaming from comedy clubs. When it was clear that we would have to cancel a bunch of tour shows, which was, I think, March 12th, mm-hmm. uh, 11th or 12th, somewhere around there. Um, at the same time, Chris Bowers, who, you know, has been a buddy of mine, and we co-owned comedy clubs together. Um, he reached out to me and said, Hey, I want to do a variety show. Um, and Ben reached out to me and said, Hey, I want to start a comedy club. And I had already had plans to do more stuff on my, you know, more live streams on, on my YouTube and potentially Facebook and kind of got it all together and started the social distancing social club, which is this hybrid of, you know, podcast, morning radio, and late night TV. Right. It's a little of everything. But, but it's also, you know, a, a kind of a tit-funded um, program where live stand-ups actually get paid to perform. And while we were doing that, Ben and I continued working on the comedy club idea. And, you know, we ran into, the problems we were kind of running into were, okay, what tech do we use, as well as how do we make sure the audience is a good audience? And, you know, the thing that we did with, with SDSC right away was ensure that we could hear the audience. 
so many of the early Zoom shows, and including the ones that are going on that are still going on, mm-hmm. um, don't have an audience you can hear. And I don't understand why suddenly comedians became such cowards. <laughs> like, mic the audience the same way that you could hear them if you were at a club. They could yell out of the club or a theater or, or a bar or any other venue, and we're used to that. And it's easier to handle them on Zoom because you just mute them or kick them out. Right. So we uh, we made sure the audience was part of it, which I think is, is super important. Um, and then we also, uh, you know, we I have a philosophy of, you know, to get the right answers, you have to ask yourself the right questions. And I think a lot of comedians were asking the wrong question. They were asking, how do we reach as big of an audience online as possible? Because that was always the question you asked when you were doing social media. Right. But when we're trying to replicate live shows, the correct question is, how do you reach the right audience? How do you replicate 200 respectful people watching a show like we're used to at a comedy club? Mm-hmm. And so we decided we would limit the number of tickets we would sell and we would charge for them. And we wouldn't just charge a dollar or suggest donation. We would charge at least 10 bucks. And we tested it. And April 6th was our first show. It was actually three shows that, that day. I tried one at 11 a.m., one at 11 p.m., and one at 6 p.m. And the idea was that one was for Europe, one was for Australia, and one was for North America. Mm-hmm. And I got to tour the world in one day. Yeah, I am very impressed. First, first off, I totally uh, ripped off your uh, social your social distancing uh, talk show myself. I've got one called the BTB Internet Talk Show, and it's kind of a cross between yours and Ian Bag's show. So, uh, just just so you know, it's it's a total rip off because I liked what you did. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate you saying that, but I mean, the reality is we're all in this business. We're all going to try to create similar things. And, you know, I, I respect that you put it that way, but, you know, unless you're really doing the same format, then I, I don't think it would be a real Yeah, it's, it's the idea. I took, the idea was so good, I took it and ran with it, and I love doing it. It's, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. But this Nowhere Comedy Club, I mean, this is not like – I mean, this is A-list people. I mean, you got the Burbigs all weekend, Mike Burbiglia. You got Todd Berry coming up. You've got uh, Mary Santora. You got the Gazer Us show um, with a lot of great people. And, I mean, just just great stuff. And then you're up there. Greg Proops is up there. I mean, it, it's, it's really cool. I'm actually going to buy tickets for one of the – uh, Berbiglia shows, and I think I'm going to do a Q&A one so I can talk to him because I want him to be on the podcast. Maybe I can convince him. Well, I mean, the Berbig shows are some of the best shows, if not the best shows we have. Yeah. I mean, and we've had, you know, we've had, you know, John Cleese did one, and we're going to have him come back, and we've had, um, you know, some of the some of the people who have popped in on the showcases or the interview shows. Bar Brothers are regulars, so we've had... Jim Gaffigan and Nikki Glazer and John Hamm. And I mean, it's been insane, but the big shows are produced so well. Like he really, he's not someone who threw a laptop up on a couple of empty Amazon boxes. Yeah. Like he really put the thought in, put the effort in, bought the equipment, like understood that this is a way to replicate a theater show. Mm-hmm. And so his shows, his shows there are perfection. He's so good at it, and his team is so good at it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the fun thing about it is that there's no limitation of geography. And so we've had, you know, we had a comic who was in Singapore. We had a, we've had a, a bunch of Australian comics. We've had, you know, we have UK comics. And, and to be able to have anyone who is qualified to do so do a show, no matter where they are, in the world is something really cool. I co-host a weekly show with Dan Muggleton who does it from Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been, it's been kind of great. So let's, let's get into your work ethic a little bit because I have never seen somebody. Well, 
Bob Zaney used to do it, but uh, somebody who booked as many shows all around the country as you, what is it that drives you to do so many shows and be out there for so much of the year? You know, the, my, my, my running joke about it is uh, fear of failure. Uh-huh. Um, but really what it is, is when you work for yourself and you don't do the work, the only person you're stealing from is is you. Mm. So I wouldn't want an employee to not put the work in. So why wouldn't I? Um, Not to mention, why do we do this if we don't love it? Right. Like, I love being a stand-up comic. And while the road is exhausting, it's also fun and rewarding. And especially now where I'm at the point in my career where, you know, the shows are usually packed, the money's good, the, you know, I get to bring my own openers, so I'm touring with friends. Like, why would I want to do less of that? It sounds great. Mm-hmm. When you're on the road and you're doing, let's, and let's pretend like we're not in COVID times and locked in, yeah. uh, let's, if you're doing like five shows in a week and, and it's at three different venues, do you mix things up? Do you do different shows for different crowds? Do you start, do you work out new material? How, how does your show go when you're doing so many? Um, you know, I mean, I, I certainly try to, you know, work off, work some new stuff into my set when I can, but, you know, I I keep things fresh by ending each show with, uh, with a Q&A. And it's not only a Q&A with me, but I bring my openers on stage for it also. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's just a lot of fun. You know, we have a great time, and that keeps every show different. But I am working on material and so if I want to work out that material then I need to work on that material and every now and then you know something will happen in the news that will call for me going back to an old bit or I'll be in the mood to talk about something but for the most part I'm trying to get as close to that hour that I'm developing as possible in order to make it perfect or as perfect as it'll be in order to record it mm-hmm. When did the Q&A start? How long have you been doing that? Oh, God, I've been doing that over a decade. Okay. And, you know, I started doing it when I didn't really have fans. And so it was tough to get people to ask questions because people didn't come wanting to ask questions. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it was an evolution of I started ad-libbing on Sundays. Because people would come to like a Thursday show and they would say, oh, that was fun. I want to come back and see you. And I'm like, well, it's the same show all week. So Uh even if I do like 10 minutes different, it's still, you know, it's not like I have hours and hours and hours of stuff. I was doing a different show every day. So I got this idea because clubs would have a Sunday show. And the clubs that had a Sunday show, you know, and this is when you're not drawing, you're just at the mercy of their own audience. And when clubs have a Sunday show, you basically you do two packed shows on a Saturday, and then you end the week in front of 30 people. And that sucks. Mm-hmm. So, I asked, it started in Louisville at the Comedy Caravan. When I asked them for permission, I said, hey, can I give out free tickets throughout the week to Sunday? And, you know, I'll tell people that it's 100% answered. You'll come back, you'll see a different set. And they said, yes. And it went so well that eventually my Louisville show, the Sunday started selling out before the Saturday. <laughs> because it just became word of mouth. People were like, oh, this is the show where anything can happen. And it's the show where like, hey, you know, if you have a Malvi friend, bring him to the show. And what I used to say in the beginning was, you know, when I would, when I would talk about the ad-lib show, I would say, come to the show. If you have questions, great. I'm going to ask you questions. And if you have a mouthy friend, bring them to the show. I'll fuck them up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> it just it just became this thing that kind of took on a life of its own. And 
And so I started, um, you know, a lot of the clubs didn't have Sunday shows. And so I started just incorporating ad lib into my regular show. And I did that by ending with a Q&A. And in the beginning, I would bribe them to ask questions. I would say, hey, you know, I do my merch pitch where I talk about my album. And then I would say, the person who asks the best question gets a, gets a free album. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I would still only get like a question or two. But it, it evolved into something that's, you know, now part, now part of my show. That's... And by the way, the reason uh, that, you know, I really believe in it is because it personalizes the show for people who are there. And it allows someone to watch more than one show in a week. Even if I'm doing the same hour up front, they still see the back end is completely different. Right. And, you know, it's also something that I know I can do as an artist that not everyone can do. So why not lean into my strength? Right. And, you know, I, I recommend that for all comedians. If there's something you can do that differentiates you as a comedian, then do it. It's very, uh, it's very improv because they're, I mean, you don't know what they're going to ask. And I've watched some, because you tape a lot of it and I've watched quite a few of them and you're pretty fast on your feet, but I don't see that you have an improv background. How is that just something that comes naturally to you? So I kind of do have an improv background. Okay. It was when I was a kid. Okay. So when I was, the thing that got me into comedy was when I was 13, I joined, my high school had an improv club. And I joined it, and I was, I say high school, we actually started in 7th grade. So from 8th grade to 12th grade, I, I did improv at least once a week for five years. Cool. And so it is it is something that it's been a bit. You know, I don't have any, like, real formal training. We were just kind of trying to figure things out by watching old episodes of the British News Line. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, every now and then, I have, uh, you know, I've joined with a with an improv group on stage for, for something fun. Uh, and it's a, you know, it's a fun little throwback to when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's really cool. When did the, uh, so... Obviously, your YouTube channel is one of the biggest YouTube channels of like any comic, and a lot of it has to do with the responses to hecklers. And how how did that all come about? It started as a YouTube thing with I was in the beginning of my YouTube channel. I didn't want to put my material up; I just wanted to put outtakes up. So mm. it was like clips up from those Sunday shows. And then there was a show where my opener was trying to get a new tape, and so we hired a, a videographer to shoot all weekend. We were in uh, comedy on stage in Madison. And I said, I was like, hey, if I throw him a couple of bucks, if I cover a little bit of the cost, can he shoot me as well? And, you know, I said yes. And there was an incident where a guy asked something very stupid, and just in a very giggly way, I just kind of made fun of how dumb the question mm-hmm. And I took that clip and I put it up, not really thinking much of it. And it just started getting used. And I remember how excited I was when it hit 30,000 views. I remember <laughs> where I was. That's how important it was. When it hit 30,000 views. And I remember thinking, wow, 30,000 people have seen my work. And now if a clip doesn't get 30,000 views, I'm like, ugh, what a failure. Yeah, no doubt. Because you're, yeah, you know, your, um, you know, your expectations shift. Um, but it just started moving. And it was an accident that these became something big. But when they started moving, I definitely took note, leaned into it, and know, started trying to put more up, and I went from having, shooting a show occasionally with a videographer, to buying a flip camera, you know, one of those little things that yeah. you put in the back of the room, you're just, you look like a potato, Yeah. <laughs> and then buying a, you know, $200 used piece of garbage, and then eventually having three cameras, and now having four 4k cameras that i used to shoot every show and it was just an evolution of investing in myself 
That's really cool. Has it become a, just a thing where people just come to your show to heckle? Because it doesn't, it, most of the people that heckle seem like just actual dumbasses. Um, and is anybody put, 100% of them are actual dumbasses. Yeah. It, 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 um, <laughs> it, has, it has only happened one time. Um, and when that happened, I kicked the guy out and I deleted the footage ah. because no one is going to get into me by interrupting someone else's night. Right. And what I actually did on that one, because, you know, I'm petty, uh, it, or I find being petty very funny is when I kicked him out as he was leaving, I said, I can't wait to put this clip up on YouTube. <laughs> and after he left, I told, I told that whole crowd there was no way I was putting that club on YouTube. I just wanted him to think I was going to, so he'd go home and reload for a year like a dick. Yeah. And then, just in case it didn't happen, I told that whole crowd, corner people, I told them to go home, F the show, and comment on every video. Can't wait to see the Portland clip. And they did that for months. Uh huh. For months. It was the best. And every time I saw someone comment that, I laughed. It was the best. <laughs> so you're... And, and to, to, give you a, to give you a more serious answer of why, people want to see it. No one wants to be it. Yeah. Plenty of people say to me after a show, oh, I wish someone heckled you. And plenty of people say, oh, it's too bad no one did. Uh-huh. But when you, when you see someone, if you're watching a video on YouTube of a, of a marksman, and you see them shoot a dummy in the head, you don't watch that and say, who can shoot me in the head? You right. might want to see him do it in person. You don't want to get shot. And that's, that's the, I think that's the main logic of it. Right. I think, you know, you're, you have a, a definite point of view and your, your act, you definitely have opinions. So I guess, and from what I know about comedy and going to a lot of shows and doing shows, people don't research the comedian that they're going to see a lot of times <laughs> and, and they, they, they don't get what they expect, which, uh, they, I mean, th they may, uh, expect you to be a prop comic or whatever. So when they, when they come in and start drinking, I can see how, uh, between your point of view and material and them drinking, I can see how that is uh, a good breeding ground for just people being dumbasses. Oh yeah. The idea when people suggest that like that the heckler clips are fake, first of all, how explain the logistics. But even if, you know, not getting into that ridiculousness, the idea that it's to find someone drunk who's an asshole, I mean, that's every bar you've ever gone to, there's that guy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, add in the fact that I record every show, I do 300 shows a year, I do an hour a night, and I go last when they're typically more wasted, it's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, I I really enjoyed watching a lot of those. Between that and the Q and A, I think that's a really cool way to differentiate yourself. And obviously, it's done very well for you. Uh, one of the things I want to get into is, uh, you know, I I follow you on social media, and I've been watching pretty closely, you know, the the issues that have gone on this year, and for somebody who works as hard as you do and wants to keep your name out there. Um, I was very impressed by the fact that you took a stand on black, black lives matter, COVID, um, our president and things like that and risked all of that, uh, that you've worked for. And can you tell me, um, first of all, you know, a lot of comics didn't, you know, a lot of comics kept quiet, but you, you, you've been pretty vocal about it. Can you tell me what prompted you to do that and what you expected to happen versus what actually happened? I have spent over a decade cultivating a compassionate fan I am very proud of my fans. Mm -hmm. You know, look, sometimes you get, you get the, the person who just 
saw me yell at a heckler and goes, oh, he's mean, I like that. He doesn't understand the psychology behind it. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, if you're vocal, the right people find you. And what I try to explain to, you know, the, the comedy friends who, who have asked me about that is that it is good for business. The idea, the only way that you risk alienating your fan base is if your fan base sucks. Mm-hmm. If, if you have cultivated the right fan base, then you should have no problem speaking up. Whenever somebody says to me, oh, you're alienating half your audience, I go, no, 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 no. They're not my audience. I'm alienating maybe a 2% of my audience. Mm-hmm. And, I'm re- and I'm reaching out to more of it. Right. Every time, every time over the years that I've talked shit about an important subject, I will lose a couple hundred people and gain a thousand. And the numbers shift over the years, but it's always a net gain. Because if you're saying something you truly believe in, you will you will resonate with the other people who believe in it. When you say no one goes into a dress store and tells them they're losing half their Here's to the great American settlers. The millions of you who settled for unsatisfying jobs because they pay the bills. Of course, there is something else you could do if you got something to say. Start a podcast with Spreaker from iHeart and unleash your creative freedom. Maybe even earn enough money to one day tell your old boss, Hey, I'm no settler. I'm an explorer. Spreaker.com. S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R. Hustle on over today. Great news. For a limited time, you can get one month free of Spectrum Mobile service. That's right, one month free with any new line. This exclusive offer is only available at select Spectrum stores, so stop by today. Our team of mobile experts are ready to help you switch and save hundreds on your mobile bill. Don't miss out on this incredible offer. Come see us at Market at Hilliard, Taylor Square, and Waterloo Crossing. Spectrum Internet and auto pay required. Restrictions apply. Visit store for details. Audience, by not selling pants. <laughs> That's not what they do. Right. So I have shown other comics and I have posted my numbers on my own social media that there was a comment. I got a DM the day that I posted. I donated a good deal of money to um, to a uh, Black Lives Matter COVID fund. Mm-hmm. And it, it was uh, something started by Chris Red, and I thought it was a really amazing charity. And I posted it saying that, you know, I would match what people were donating. And so that day, I got a really nasty message from someone saying, you're losing your fans, and I used to think you were funny, and blah, blah, blah. And I took that message, and I screenshotted it, along with my Instagram numbers for that week, that showed I had gained over 10,000 followers in a week. Mm-hmm. And I posted it with my Facebook numbers, which showed I was gaining two to 4,000 a day. And I posted those, and I said, tell me again how this is making me lose followers. Yeah. That, I followed that, and that's, that's why I brought up that question, because I, do, do you feel like it's becoming important? So I, one of my first interviews, I talked to a um, – uh, a PhD in marketing, or I, I, can't, I can't remember what his PhD is, but he's a he, he studies comedy and he talks about two different types of comedians. Um, one is a thermometer comedian, and they tell you about what's going on. The other one is a thermostat comedian, and that's somebody who is trying to change minds by what they say. Do you feel like we need more thermostat comedians now? That is such a great way to break it down. I've never heard that before. I I love that. Yeah. Um I think I think we we always need a thermostat comedian. Now there are a lot of thermostat comedians and look, there is a time and a place for a comedian that just wants to distract you and make you laugh. 
and not think about your problems, mm-hmm. and that's fine. That ain't me. I don't begrudge the people who do it. Um, so it's hard for me to say definitively we need more thermostat comedians. Um, I'm just proud to be one. Right, right. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of people I've talked to who were more of a thermometer type comedian are saying that they want to be a thermostat comedian now. And they're writing material in that fashion just because they want to make a change. They, they want to change people's minds. Yeah, why else did we get into this? Yeah, yeah, no doubt. So let's talk about... I. You know, I, I can't say I've read uh, Ginger Kid, but I know this is uh, it, it's on my list to buy. I I buy so many things from the people I talk to, but uh, talking about being a nerd and being bullied in in high school and uh, junior high and stuff like that. Um, first off, what? Were you like a nerd in the fact that you um, were into nerdy things? Are you, or were you more of an outlier type nerd? Um, you know, both. I think more the first one. Okay. Um, I was always like not too far removed from kids who were cool, but still not accepted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was. Super into fantasy baseball, uh, you know, love sci-fi, you know, like the, the, the standard stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I also, I think I've always had more of an adult sense of humor. That, does, that doesn't really fly with, you know, 13, 14-year-olds. Right. You know, a 13, 14-year-old doesn't appreciate a good son. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> like that. You know, I, I was, I've been listening to Carlin since I was like seven. Uh-huh. So, you know, I started listening, I started listening to Hicks when I was 11. Um, and then, like, I, I didn't fit in. And, you know, I had some friends and, you know, as I got older, I learned how to relate to people better. Um, you know, but I think a lot of us feel that. I think, I think not, not feeling like you fit in is, is a is a pretty universal thing. Mm-hmm. Did you use comedy to try to fit in? Eventually, yeah, and that that's kind of the arc of Ginger where you know where I discover this improv group, mm-hmm. and you know I join it kind of on a lark, and then it just becomes my life, and you know, and it was the first time I got positive attention, and not to ruin the end of the book, but I ended up I ended up speaking at my graduation and and got a laugh from an interruption. So <laughs> the, stage, the stage was set early. There was a, it was there was this like pivotal point in the speech and all of a sudden, you know, it's a quiet moment and you just hear a baby just kinda go, ah like real laugh. Uh-huh. And so just perfectly seriously I just turned toward where the baby was sitting and I just go Thank you. Uh-huh. And then I go back into my speech, and it gets a laugh, and you know, and that was, I guess, you know, I guess an early, an early baby heckler. I don't know. It was, uh, you know, just kind, of, just kind of a precursor to what was coming. Right, right. I um. So this next this this next question is kind of a log- logistics thing because you do shows all over. Um, you actually did a show. Um, I'm near South Bend, Indiana, and you did a show at a bar that a friend of mine owns, uh, Vegetable Buddies, and that was I think it was towards yeah. the end of the year last year. And um, the funny thing is, is I had talked him into uh, booking. Uh, a couple of showcase shows and stuff like that myself. So I was, I was doing shows right after you did your show. And, um, I want to talk to you about that particular type of bar because it's a, it's a rock bar. Um, the seats, the table, the stage is like five foot, uh, four and a half feet. The tables are far away and it's like the absolute worst 
place to do comedy. So when you think about doing comedy in a place like that, and l- let's take out the fact that you fill the place up and and everything's cool because of that. How do you change the way you act on stage when you're in a venue that's got the high ceilings, the tables are further away, and the lighting's different and all that? How do you change the way you act on stage? Well, first of all, I wouldn't even put that venue in the bottom 50% of that venue. (laughs) Uh, But... uh, First of all, you do everything you can to, to change it to make it work for you. Uh-huh. So I have I have lights that I bring. I have you know you you move tables around. You you know having produced as many shows as I've done, you get a feel for a while. You know after a while, you get a feel for like okay, move this here, move that there, move that there. And when I'm on the road, um, you know my openers and I show up two hours before a show and. Nine times out of ten, we show up two hours before a show, we talk to them about logistics, and we go have dinner. Uh-huh. Every now and then, we are moving tables and chairs around and still door. Yeah. Because sometimes you get there and you're like, oh, you guys don't know what comedy is. Right. It's not music. It's not an distraction. You need to focus. Yeah. Um, but part of that is also, it seems counterintuitive, but that kind of stuff happens quieter. And you lean back. Uh-huh. And the reason is because you need people to lean into you. You will never be able to shout down people who want to shout you down. Right. But if you if you get the crowd wants to be there to lean in, then the other people become the exception. Right. So that is that is neat. and also and you know and my guys know this, but when you open, you open strong. There is no meandering into your set. You have to prove that you are funny within 30 seconds or you will be eaten a lot. Right. And so, you know, and that's true at colleges. Um, most of the time, I mean, unless you're doing like a theater. But the, the idea is prove that you're funny and then play around. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. I did, I think. I did my last show there in January and I think I did, I don't know, eight or nine shows. And I finally figured out for me, because I obviously wasn't pulling in the same size audience as you do. I mean, I think my best was 70. Um, so which is pretty good, but, uh, the problem, the problem I had was, uh, just being so far away people from people on the stage and I just wasn't getting the feedback. So, uh, the last show I did, um, I had a, uh, one of my comics is, uh, confined to a wheelchair and i said hey let's just do it on the floor let's do it on the dance floor and i put uh the lighting i i had jeff change the lighting so there's just one spotlight on whoever the comic was and that show ended up going so well i was like oh okay now i know what to do but it took me nine shows to figure it out i was moving tables like you and trying to figure everything out and it turned out just just stand on the floor and you're okay (laughs) Well, every now and then, you know, you learn something new. Like, I used to run a club in New York that only sat 50 people. And and we had it as, like, a long rectangle where you're at one end of the rectangle. Mm-hmm. And then one day, we just decided to try, you know, the manager had a suggestion where we decided to try uh, just from the middle of the rectangle. And it was so much better. And I never realized until before then that it doesn't matter that, you know, you gotta gotta play in the round a little bit more that way, but there's more of a front row, and the more people in the front row, the more chance you have for what I call a crowd leader. Mm-hmm. Because if you have one table that's losing their mind laughing, that's gonna the closer they are to the front row, the more other tables they're gonna. The laughter is communal. Yeah, and you know the the more chances you can give yourself for a crowd leader, the better the show's gonna be. Mm. And I you know I didn't know that for years. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thinking about the um, fact that you are so entrenched in social media and you, you 
obviously you weren't always. I mean, you have to start somewhere. If you were to give somebody a, a new a newer comic advice on how they should approach social media in order to get their name out there, what would be the advice you would give? Well, I actually kind of was always a friend of social media, taking different forms. But you know, I was on MySpace in the first year. I was on Facebook in the first year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've been I've been using social media most of my career. But my advice for someone is we strive to be original on stage. If someone called you a hack for your act, it would be the biggest insult. So why are people so willing to be hacks when it comes to promotion? <laughs> why is it that the only promotion they'll do is something they already saw someone else? Yeah. Go be original. Go figure something else new out. Go say, okay, well, this is something that somebody can. That gives me an idea about change this way. What if I swap it that way? Hey, here's a new website that's popping. Maybe I'll get more stuff there, et cetera, et cetera. Be original. Mm-hmm. It's the only way things are going to work is if you do something new. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, there's that old quote, there's nothing new under the sun. And there's another quote, make it new. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, Obviously, the stuff that you have, you know, between the Q&As, the heckler comebacks and stuff like that, nobody else has it. And now, really, nobody else can do it unless they find a different approach because you're you're already the king. Well, yes and no. You know, Andrew Schultz has had a huge success with heckler clips. Drew Lynch has had a huge success with them. Um, Josh Wolf is doing heckling stuff, but did YouTube and Facebook is popping. And, you know, and, and that's wonderful. Like the, the thing that my friends used to say about me in college was, uh, was, uh, Steve has a hundred ideas every day. And it's our job to tell him which 99 of them are horrible. <laughs> Find the one. And that's what you need to do. I have thrown so much pasta at the wall to see what's next. I'll tell you probably the dumbest thing I did was uh, early on in my career when I was, uh, I would, you know, I would go to, I would go eat at these random places around the country. And I would always see headshots up from people that no one's ever heard of. Uh From someone who was like on a soap opera for two episodes of one. And I started thinking, how the hell does that headshot get up there? It's not like that person is eating in that diner and the server goes, oh my God, weren't you in one commercial for a couch? Like, you know, clearly the person had to volunteer to get that headshot. And I started thinking, well, why can't I do that? So I sent a bunch of headshots around. I figured I would try with Bloomington, Indiana, because I I was a regular at Bear's Place, that club there. Uh And... I found 25 different restaurants that were in that neighborhood. And I sent them a headshot with a letter saying, hey, I ate there last time I was in town. I loved it so much. You know, just wanted to send this as a token of my thanks. I'd love to see you to show sometime. You know what? One Chinese food place put it up for like a month. And that was it. It was such a dumb <laughs> idea. I, but the point is, it was an idea. Yeah. And if it worked, it would have been a great idea. Yeah. So you have as many ideas as you can, and you know maybe one of them will work. Yeah, are are you pretty uh, uh, impetuous about about stuff? Uh, if you don't have those people to tell you um, what what idea is good and why what idea isn't, w- would you just go after all of them? Well, that's why you know that's why I have close friends in my life. Yeah, <laughs> um, and look, every now and then I misfire something. Yeah. But, you know, also the more you do, the better you get at it, the better your ideas get. And, you know, and sometimes you create some and it doesn't work. You know, I've hosted like five different podcasts and none of them really hit. And so I moved on. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, you keep, uh, you keep trying. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, what is the uh, best and worst advice you got when you were coming up being a com- comedian? worst advice I got. Oh, the worst advice I got 
is someone told me to uh, stay clean because there's more work for clean comics. Uh-huh. And the reason that's bad advice is that even though it is technically true, there's even more work for good comics. Uh-huh. So if you're a good, clean comic, go be clean. And if you're not a clean comic, then don't be clean. Mm-hmm. Be the best comic you can be, whatever that is. Right. The best advice I got was from Jimmy Brogan. Um, I was about five years in and, you know, working pretty regularly, but I've seen all these comics, can't even get MC work, get television spots. And it's, it's, I'm, I'm losing my damn mind. Mm-hmm. And I reach out, I reach out to Jimmy because he is not only like, you know, a mentor to me at that point, but also he used to book with night shows. So he knows what TV bookers are looking for. He was one. And I asked him about it. And he said, are you making enough money that you're comfortable? Can you eat? Do you have a roof over your head? I said, yes. And he said, are you having fun? I said, yes. And he said, then shut up and have fun. Uh-huh. And it's the best advice I, I got, and it was, you know, it was less than a year before I got my first TV spot after that. Uh-huh. Because I, I, shut, I shut up and I had fun, and I was a different comic on stage. That's great. I, I'm so glad you mentioned Jimmy Brogan. I, in order to be different and uh, original, I did a podcast, a live stream podcast, where I was getting comedy coaching, and basically I did like uh, I showed like a seven minute set that I did, and uh, I don't know if you ever heard of Joel Byers, but uh, Joel and I went through the set. And the funny thing is, is during, during that, uh, Jimmy Brogan was, uh, was, uh, watching it and Joel said that he didn't like one of my jokes. <laughs> Jimmy says, that's the best joke of the set. <laughs> so great. it's, it's great to get different points of view, but, uh, it, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that. Yeah. And, uh, I pegged him to get on the podcast after that. And he says, yeah, I don't like podcasts. No, no dice. So. <laughs> So what three things do you know now that you wish you would have known when you started doing stand-up? Um, the most important thing is, is uh, understanding how important ego is. Um, we're all just trying to matter. Mm. And, you know, ego comes into play when it comes, you know, when it, you know, when you run afoul of other comics, when you're dealing with bookers, when you're dealing with casting directors or, or development VPs or whoever, ego is an important thing to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. And not just your own, but theirs as well. Um, another thing is... For everyone that doesn't like you, there is someone across the street that doesn't like them. Uh, there is, there are 10,000 people powerful enough to get you on TV. There is no one who's powerful enough to prevent you. Mm-hmm. Because someone else will disagree with them. Um, what else did I, what else? But I'd like to have known then that I know now. Um, your mental health is the most important thing in this business. Um, I take less money for gigs that I can bring my own opener to. Mm-hmm. To have someone on this journey with you, to not, you know, and every now and then, look, I would say it was 50 50 where I would open, you know, I would have someone open for me who I didn't know and I would really like them and stay in touch and become friends. And then sometimes I would have someone who would be a miserable week where I'm like, <laughs> I am embarrassed to be on the same stage as this person. Yeah. And, you know, I, I made the decision that I would rather lose money. I'd rather pay for the flight or whatever I could do to prevent that from happening again. Um, because, you know, my mental health is too important to me. 
if you were to give a, say somebody decides right now they want to be a comic, uh, what advice would you give given that we're in a pandemic and the world is the way it is? What advice would you give somebody that wants to be a new comic? It has never been easier to start because when you start, you're an open micer. Mm. And all you need to do to be an open micer right now is get 10 people together on a Zoom and go back and forth and work on jokes. Mm. The point of an open mic is not to do five particular minutes. The point of an open mic is to work on jokes. Yeah. And you can do that now in a way you never could before. Yep. Yep. Writing workshops has been the best thing I've done during this pandemic. Just, it's been absolutely completely beneficial to me. Yep. All right. Well, let's, uh, I know you've probably got another one of these guys scheduled here, so let's wrap up. Um, where can people, uh, find you on social media, website and all that? Uh, I'm a big believer in people use the social media that they prefer the most. So I'm on pretty much all of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, find me there, uh, come see a nowhere show. You can say come see it really pay and see it. You can watch from anywhere in the world. I watched one while I was walking my dog. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, check, check me out at, at Nowhere Comedy. And, uh, you know, stay tuned for more. Yeah. Great. Well, it's been really great talking to you, and I'm I'm glad we got this worked out. I, uh, I'm glad I was on social media at the time I was on. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's another bit of advice. Yeah. You know, make sure you're... Make sure you catch the opportunities when they're there. Yeah, no doubt. Pay attention. That's that, that's a big thing. Okay, Steve. Well, it's been great talking to you, and I I wish you the best. I I've really admired, first of all, how you handled I, I, your video about wearing a mask is just fantastic. I, you know, I've shared that a couple times, and and the the way you've handled the strife in this country, uh, I really admired it because uh, I I. I I noticed the ones who didn't speak up now and, and those are the ones I worry about a little bit because um, they're too worried about their fan base to actually talk about what's important. And, and I think it's important that we talk about stuff now. Well, I think their fan base are a bunch of assholes and I wouldn't be worried about a bunch of assholes speak about me. Yep. No doubt. No doubt. Well, thank you, Steve. This has been a great talk and I wish you the best. All right, you too. Bye. Great news. For a limited time, you can get one month free of Spectrum Mobile service. That's right, one month free with any new line. This exclusive offer is only available at select Spectrum stores. So stop by today. Our team of mobile experts are ready to help you switch and save hundreds on your mobile bill. Don't miss out on this incredible offer. Come see us at Market at Hilliard, Taylor Square, and Waterloo Crossing. Spectrum Internet and auto pay required. Restrictions apply. Visit store for details. To make a rich, smooth cold brew, Tim Horton steeps 100% Arabica beans for 16 hours. What could be richer than that? Well, uh... How about blending in swirls of sweet Irish cream? Rich enough? Ooh, I guess. Not quite. Because Tim Hortons tops that cold brew with the cloud of sweet cold foam. Now, what could be richer than that? Nothing? Exactly. Irish cream cold brew with cold foam now at Tim Hortons. Or try cold foam on any of your Tim Hortons favorites. Modifications extra for a limited time at participating U.S. locations.